0: Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 1, says, Then they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadarenes. And when he had come out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit, who had his dwelling among the tombs. No one could bind him, not even with chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains. And the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces. Neither could anyone tame him, and always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him, and he cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. For he said to him, Come out of the man, unclean spirit. And then he asked him, What is your name? And he answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. Also he begged him earnestly that he would not send them out of the country. Now a large herd of swine was feeding there near the mountains. So all the demons begged him, saying, Send us to the swine that we may enter them. And at once Jesus gave them permission. Then the unclean spirits went out and entered the swine. There were about 2,000. And the herd ran violently down the steep place into the sea and drowned in the sea. So those who fed the swine fled and they told it in the city and in the country and they went out to see what it was that had happened. Then they came to Jesus and saw the one who had been demon possessed and had the legion sitting and clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who saw it told them how it happened to him who had been demon possessed and about the swine. And then he began to plead with him to, they began to plead with him to depart from their region. And when he got into the boat, he who had been demon possessed begged him that he might be with him. However, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends. Tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. And he departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis, Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him. And all marveled. So Jesus arrives at the country of the Gadarenes. This is on the east side, or some say the southeast side of the Sea of Galilee. We're not given a specific town location, Gadara. Uh, the town that the country was named for was about 30 miles from the Sea of Galilee. doesn't seem you know, like that's a place. Uh, some say uh, Gerasa, and that was several miles from the Sea of Galilee. To me, the best um, aspect is probably a place called Hippos. It was a Roman town, and it sits on a bluff. You can you can look it up and see photos of it. You know, and it sits on a bluff, and then there's a steep incline down to the Sea of Galilee. But we don't know exactly where it was. But this is the destination Jesus had in mind when he said to the apostles, let us cross over to the other side. And then they encountered the great windstorm that threatened to sink the boat. There was a spiritual conflict coming. And the storm had a spiritual battle component to it. Jesus spoke to the wind and sea in the same terms he used in speaking to the man with an unclean spirit in Mark chapter 1. Although windstorms are fairly common on the Sea of Galilee, this one was somewhat special. Jesus prevailed as he, well, as he always did. They thought they had finally defeated him at the cross, but only because he went willingly as part of the Father's plan of redemption for mankind. And defeat was turned into victory over sin and death. And all his enemies in spiritual places were put to shame. Nothing in Jesus' life happened by coincidence. It was all planned by the Father, and Jesus never missed the will of the Father for his life. We may at times deviate from God's plans for us. He knows that this will happen, so he's not taken by surprise, and he works to redirect our steps to get us back on track. But Jesus never missed God the Father's best. Sometimes we may think that some things were just happenstance in Jesus' life, but not so. He just happens to go across the lake because he decides to. And this guy happens to be there. Such and such happened. Was Jesus caught off guard? Taken by surprise? Never. This encounter with the demoniac is part of the plan of God. That's why he was called the demoniac because he was possessed by demons. Now, if we're believers, we are in Christ. And sometimes we may think that things just happen to us. But we should seek God, if we think so, to know his purpose for what has happened. In Jesus, our life and our circumstances are not random. And although we may not always understand God's purpose until much later, we can know that there is a purpose. And so we should ask him for his guidance. We should not just drift through life unaware or in a daze, thinking we're just creatures of circumstance. He has a plan for us, and we want to walk in that plan. In Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 through 10, very familiar. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has plans for you, good works for you to walk in. If you don't have a clue what good works you should do, just find something good and do it. You will be blessed in the doing. We're not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. It's an important distinction that many people miss. And in Titus 2.14, several verses here in Titus 2.14, he says, Uh, He gave himself for us, Jesus, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. They're excited about doing good, going about doing good. Titus 3.8, he says, This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. In Titus 3.14, let our people also learn to maintain good works to meet urgent needs that they may not be unfruitful. Jesus uh, said the apostles would, were to go and to bear much fruit. Right? So he wants us to be fruitful and part of that fruitfulness is good works. Right? Good works show forth fruitfulness. Fruitfulness is seen in good works. So Jesus comes to the gatherings for a divine encounter. He's entering a satanic stronghold. This is no accidental meeting, and he's going to do some good work, as he always did, everywhere he went. Immediately, one of Mark's favorite words, we know, this fellow comes at Jesus, this man with an unclean spirit or demon. Actually, many demons, but we don't know that yet. He comes out of the graveyard. He lives among the tombs. Devils are right at home around all things that have to do with death. They come, as their master does, to steal, to kill, and to destroy. The devil loves bringing about death and destruction. He's the original death cult, and he has his religious devotees today carrying out violence and destruction and death around the world so that peoples and nations need defenses. Someday the the nations won't need defenses anymore. They'll beat their swords into plowshares. Everything will be peaceful. But that's not today. That's not this world in which we live. This man Jesus encounters has a history of violence. He breaks apart shackles and chains when he's been bound, and he's often been bound. So there must have been periods of time where he could be subdued and bound. We know physical bonds do not mean anything to demons. And although all demonized people may not be able to break chains, Many times they do exhibit supernatural or unnatural strength. There was an incident with a young girl years ago, and it took several grown men to hold her down. She was this little skinny, scrawny thing. Men and women possessed by demons often exhibit supernatural strength. But let me reassure you their heads do not rotate 360 degrees. They're probably not going to puke split pea soup at you. And they will not be defeated by casting yourself out an upper story window, inviting them to come into you. They would love that actually. You may know what that's reference to. I never never could watch it all the way through. It's too real, too demonic. This man is incredibly demonized as we will see. There is one coming in the tribulation period who will be demonized or possessed by Satan himself. But he will not behave as this man does. He will be extremely suave, extremely articulate, extremely persuasive, extremely deceptive, extremely powerful, but in a different way. He is truly the ultimate in satanic control. He will deceive the world that has rejected the truth of God. So this man was incredibly powerful in physical strength. Such power and strength only has two possible sources, the spirit of God or unclean spirits, demons, devils. But the unclean power of fallen creatures cannot come close to matching the power of God's spirit working in a man. The prominent example is Samson. God's spirit comes upon people for various purposes, not necessarily physical strength. You know, he's come upon them for victories in battle, even for artistic skills, for preparing the temple. He's come upon them for prophesying the word of God and for comforting God's people. In Samson's case, it was great strength. He rips apart a lion's jaws with his bare hands. He kills a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. Now, one of his greatest feats of strength is, well, there are a couple... Uh, Judges 16.3, Samson was in this certain village and they were laying in wait for him, waiting for him to come out so they could get him. And in Judges 16.3, it says, Samson lay low till midnight. Then he rose at midnight, took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two gateposts, pulled them up, bar and all, put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that faces Hebron. I mean, he rips out the city. You've seen this, some of these city gates, you know. He rips them out of the ground and apart you know, from the walls and carries them to the top of a hill. He doesn't go downhill. You know, he goes to the top of the hill. You know, all these movies with Samson, he's always this, you know, big bodybuilder type guy. I imagine he was a pretty average physical specimen. But, you know, we don't know for sure. Someday we'll we'll get to know that. But it was God's strength. It wasn't because he had big muscles and stuff that that Samson was able to do this. His greatest feat of strength probably is at the end of his life in Judges sixteen, twenty nine, and thirty, where he had been captured, is blinded. They've got him grinding meal, you know, the uh, Philistines, and they bring him into their temple for entertainment, and in. Uh, Judges 16:29 says, Samson took hold of the two middle pillars which supported the temple and he braced himself against them, one on his right and the other on his left. And through archaeological ex- uh, excavations, we've discovered the design of these pagan temples that they worshipped in. And the, the whole thing is supported by two central pillars and they're within arm's reach of a man. It says Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines and he pushed with all his might and the temple fell his hair had started to grow back, by the way, that was his strength, right? And he pushed with all his might and the temple fell on the Lord's and all the people who were in it. So the dead that he killed at his death were more than he had killed in his life. Uh let me correct that. The seeker wasn't his hair that was peripheral, the seeker was his obedience to the Lord and you know, doing the things that he was supposed to do so uh, I think this is an old old story an old joke about it It says in his last performance, he brought the house down that's where that that's where that expression comes from I think is you know Samson brought the house down, but I don't know that for sure either so this man, this demon possessed man was bound with chains and shackles that he would break. unclean spirits are spiritual. And they must be bound spiritually for any benefit, not physically. This is Jesus' argument. Remember when he was accused of casting out demons uh, by the power of the devil. And he said, you've got to bind the strong man if you're going to rob his house. And so there has to be a spiritual binding. You can bind him with chains and shackles, but that's not necessarily going to hold him. We're told that no man could tame this man as though speaking of a wild beast. Matthew speaks of the demonized as men exceedingly fierce so that no one passed that way. They just went out of their way to avoid. And they probably had a, another graveyard somewhere because they wouldn't go to this one anymore. The demonized are often reduced to the state of an uncontrollable animalism, including the refusal to wear clothing, as was the case with this man. So this is his state. He's been taken captive by the enemy to do his will. He cries out day and night and also self-harms, cutting himself with sharp stones. Jesus comes to destroy his authority over all power and principality and to show compassion toward this pitiful man. Evil spirits have taken over his body and his life. And we may wonder how this man came to be in this condition. And we're not told specifically. But we do know that certain practices are dangerous and can result in a person being demonized. A demon cannot just possess a person at will. You notice in this account that the demons cannot even enter the swine without permission. Adam Clark says, Since a demon cannot enter even into a swine without being sent by God himself, How little is the power or malice of them to be dreaded by those who have God for their portion and protector. If a person is possessed, a door must be opened in some way or permission given by some means. But the person may not be aware of the danger of their activity. By the way, a true believer cannot be possessed by a demon. The Holy Spirit will not share his home. But a believer could be oppressed by the same if acting unwisely in these matters. The invitation need not be explicit. Any involvement in occult activities can open a door that allows an evil spirit to harass or enter a person. And we are warned about this in the scriptures. And there are numerous accounts in history of these things occurring. People's own testimony. All forms of the occult. Divination. Uh, foreseeing the future. Fortune telling. Astrology. Idolatry. Idolatry. Anytime someone's practicing idolatry, they're opening themselves up to the possibility of demon possession. Um, Paul talks of uh, idols' temples, and he says that, that, you know, eating there is like eating at the table of demons. And so there's much demon possession in countries where idolatry is practiced. You know, we have relatively small amounts in our nation. We've got that historical... uh, Christian background and biblical foundation, uh, but uh, on the mission field in some of these countries, they encounter this quite often and have to deal with um, demonized people. Uh, Playing occult games like Ouija boards and Dungeons and Dragons, some will scoff at this and say, it's only a game. And not everyone who plays becomes demonized, but instances have been documented People messing with Ouija boards and ended up demonized. Or Dungeons and Dragons. I'm sure there are other things out there. My knowledge is a little dated. Even for those who do not become demonized through such activities, an immersion in these things many times leads to a strong deception or delusion. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 talks about God sending a strong delusion on those who refuse to to believe the truth. Matthew 24, Jesus warns us three times in that chapter, take heed that no one deceives you. First, Timothy do- uh, chapter 4 uh, speaks of uh, the last days when men will not endure sound doctrine, but they'll listen to doctrines of demons. Demons have doctrine. Doctrines means teaching, by the way. You know, some people are opposed to doctrine. That means they want to be stupid or what? You know, they're against teaching. <laughs> First John 4 says, Don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see if they're of God or not. And Deuteronomy 13 speaks of a prophet who gives a prophecy and it comes to pass, but he tells you to follow some other God than the true God. And, you know, that's, Condemned. There's, a, there's a false spirit there when someone's doing that. Uh, one of the definitive passages is Deuteronomy 18. In Deuteronomy 18, uh, starting in verse 9, it says, When you come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominations of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire, or so as a human sacrifice, or one who practices witchcraft, And these words have shades of meaning that you can look up in, you know, uh, Hebrew and and Greek dictionaries. Uh, This refers to divination, fortune telling by some supernatural means, uh, not a soothsayer. This is someone who claims to be a prophet, but they're a false prophet or a false seer. One who interprets omens, you know, chicken entrails. Or signs, interprets the signs of the heavens. Or we might say harbingers. Or a sorcerer, which is a witch. Or one who conjures spells. Or a medium or a spirit is somebody who uh, speaks to spirits and to the dead. One who calls up the dead, a necromancer. And there's also uh, in Daniel, there's... Condemnations are breeding the signs of the heavens, such as astrology. So it, it's really any attempt to find out secret knowledge by supernatural means can uh, lead to these types of demon possessions. And there are both fake and real spiritists and mediums out there. And it says in verse 12, then, for all those who do these things are an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God drives them out from before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations, which you will dispossess, listened to soothsayers and diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not appointed such for you. So, uh, with this man, Jesus doesn't make an issue of how or why the man became demonized. He did not come to condemn, but to deliver. In John 3:17 and 18, it says, God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. In Acts 26 verses 27 and 8, uh I'm sorry, 26 verses 17 and 18, uh, Paul's giving his defense before King Agrippa. And he says, this is what Jesus was saying to him when he knocked him down on the road. He says, I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. That they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. There are real powers of spiritual darkness in our world. Colossians chapter 1 verses 12 through 14. He says, uh, this is part of a prayer. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom Of the son of his love. In whom we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins. We've been taken from one kingdom. Power of darkness. And we've been conveyed. He's taken us into the kingdom of the son of his love. So Jesus in great compassion has come to bring deliverance to this man. Who is so severely tortured by evil spirits. Jesus comes to bring redemption. And there's no redemption without deliverance. And when this man sees Jesus, he runs to him. The text says he worshipped him, that is, he fell down before him. He cries out with a loud voice, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High, God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. That's that's a form of an oath. I implore you by God. Another account of this, they, they say, Have you come to torment us before the time? There's going to come a time they know they're going to be put in the pit. Well, this is not the man speaking, but the spirits that are dwelling within him. Uh, The spirits immediately recognize him and they know his authority over them. They know him as the son of the most high God. And there is none higher. Jesus tells us that the demons believe, I'm sorry, James tells us the demons believe that there is one God. They actually know so. Uh, And in James 2.19, he says, you believe that there's one God? He's speaking to the Jewish person. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. So the demons know that there is one true God. Uh, This was, you know, when James speaks of this, you believe there's one God. This was the Jews' boast. That's the Shema, uh, Deuteronomy 6.4. I think it is they would repeat this morning and night the lord the lord our god the lord is one and this was something they would repeat well even the belief, the demons believe that you don't get any extra points for that you know but the demons belief cannot save them thus they tremble with fear their faith is based on more certain knowledge than our own they have experienced his presence they know who he is they are aware of his authority but they hope that you are not you recall the incident of the seven sons of Skeva in Acts nineteen. They were called itinerant exorcists, so they would go around seeking to cast out demons. And they wanted they tried an experiment. This was it was a scientific experiment with Jesus' name. And they sought to cast these demons out of a man in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. You recall, you know, the demons said, well, we know who Jesus is and we we know Paul, but who are you? And jumped on them and they ran wounded and naked from the house. Demons do not fear encountering you apart from Jesus. God does give his people power over unclean spirits. But demons are nothing to play around with, as we learn from the sons of Skiva. It's a very serious endeavor to confront a demon-possessed person. It's not something you want to undertake unprepared spiritually. I mean, I don't want to undertake it at all. I don't even like speaking about this topic. Why stir him up? <laughs> but it's here, you know. This, that's one of the good things about going book by book, verse by verse. You have to deal with things you'd rather not, and and there are things that are beneficial, things that God has given us for our for our good. So it's not something you want to undertake unprepared spiritually. At the same time, we need not fear the enemy, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. First John four four, Jesus has overcome the world. He tells us John sixteen thirty three, and, and Jesus told us some come out. But don't come out except by prayer and fasting. You know, so you don't want to be unprepared. You, if you're going into something like that, you want to be spiritually prepared, and it may include a lot of prayer and a lot of fasting. I was thinking about Paul with the uh, in Acts 16 with the girl, the fortune-telling girl who would follow he and Barnabas, and or he and uh, Silas, and she would call out, "These are men who speak of the way of the Most High God." You know. It says after it went on for many days, and after a while, Paul got exasperated, you know, and that's when he cast it in. But I'm sure he was praying during that period of time, and he may have been fasting. We're not told that he was. They won't respond to ritual or ceremony, but only to the power of God. Now, some also will become obsessed with the devil and evil. We don't need to look for a demon behind every bush. We avoid them if we can. Let's be obsessed with Jesus and not with the powers of darkness. So when the unclean spirits are face to face with Jesus, they know his authority and they must submit to it. But I think there's a certain deluded thinking on the part of Satan. The devil knows the scriptures, but he doesn't believe them. I think he still thinks that somehow he can be victorious in this battle with God. He certainly keeps trying to do so. He seeks to destroy Israel. Without Israel, God cannot keep his promises to them. He seeks to destroy the church. Although the word of God says that true believers will overcome all obstacles, I think he suffers under the same delusion that God will place upon his followers because they refuse to believe the truth. It may be, of course, that Satan just hates God and man so much that he's continuing on to his own destruction, knowing the outcome. But I think his character is more in line with self-delusion. The devil may initially think he has a chance of victory here. He has Jesus outnumbered, apparently, at least 2,000 to 1. Come on, guys, we can take him. Someone said when they replied Legion, when he asked their name, they really weren't saying a name, but simply trying to intimidate Jesus with a large number. Legion said, there are a lot of us. We're organized. We're unified. We're ready to fight. And we are mighty. If the devil thinks he may win a victory, he quickly discovers that that is not the case. His demons, however many, can only obey the commands of Jesus. Jesus commands the spirit to come out of the man, but then he does something unusual. He usually commands the demons to not speak. But instead, in this instance, he asks the man, What is your name? He does this because there is a certain lesson to be taught. Some seek to imitate this behavior and attempt to speak to demons when trying to cast them out, even asking them doctrinal questions and accepting their answers as true. This is extremely foolish and extremely dangerous. We do not want to solicit doctrines or teachings of demons. They're readily available as it is, and they're based on lies. The spirit answers through the man and gives a name. It has no option. <laughs> the man says, my name is Legion, for we are many. And really, the spirit's speaking through this man. Henry Morris points out, Jesus had asked the man his name, but the, de- the dominant evil spirit answered using the man's vocal apparatus. The same phenomenon is occasionally encountered in demon possessed people today, with the responding spirit exhibiting knowledge and voice structure markedly different from that of the person possessed. A lot of uh, people who are possessed will have knowledge of things that they personally have never known or studied, even languages, uh, because the demons have been around for a long time and they know all these things. And they're seeking to deceive by the possession. Of these folks. So. The true condition of the man becomes known. He is not only possessed by an evil spirit. He is possessed by many evil spirits. A legion was the major unit of the Roman army. Consisting of 3,000 to 6,000 infantry troops. And 100 to 200 cavalry troops. Cavalry troops. (laughs) We're the the cavalry troops. Yeah. mispronounce a lot of things. You just got to deal with it. (laughs) It seems at least 2,000 spirits were inhabiting this man's body as we can deduce from the number of the swine. Now, this incident, incident makes it clear that multiple demons can take possession of a human being's body. Jesus spoke in another place of a demon being cast out and coming back later with seven other spirits, more wicked than himself, to possess the same house. That's in Matthew chapter 12. 43 through 45, more wicked than himself. It's interesting there are degrees of wickedness among the evil spirits, just as among men. The demons beg Jesus to allow them to go into a nearby herd of swine, an unclean animal for the Jew. Animals do not become possessed generally. They may be rabid, but not demonized, except in books and movies. And I think we see from this incident that the bodies are not a satisfactory dwelling places for these unclean spirits. The desire to use—they desire to use the superior faculties of humankind—and so the entire herd of about 2,000 rushed down and drowned in the sea. Did the swine commit side? Oh or did the demons destroy these new homes? We don't know. We only know the outcome. The men who fed the pigs are astounded and they go into the city and country and tell what has happened and the city turns out to see for themselves. It's a difficult story to believe. You guys must have it wrong. Who ever heard of such a thing? And it reminded me of you know Groucho Marx who said, it's the most unheard of thing I've ever heard of. Now <laughs> well, They come out to see Jesus and they also see the man who had been possessed by a legion of demons sitting That is, he's not acting crazy. He's wearing clothing and he's in his right mind. He's calm and behaving in a civilized manner. No more insane behavior. Unheard of. Do they rejoice? No, they're afraid. Just as the apostles feared exceedingly after the storm was stilled, they were more afraid in the calm than in the storm. So the people of the Gadarenes were more afraid of the man in his right mind than they were of the man possessed by evil spirits. We're not told the reaction of the apostles to these events. They're just quiet. (laughs) Maybe they are becoming a little more acclimated to the displays of power that reveal who Jesus is in reality. Uh, You know, he's called the man who had been possessed by the demons. And Spurgeon said that is a striking name for a man. We never get his real name, by the way. He that had been possessed with the devil, striking name for a man. It would stick to him as long as he lived. And it would be a standing sermon wherever he went. He would be asked to tell the story of what he used to be and how the change came about. What a story for any man to tell. But the city people are afraid. Maybe they don't trust this deliverance. But it is common for the first reaction to a raw display of God's power and authority or to his revealed presence, to be fear. That's why he often says, fear not, to those who believe in him. We see it in the Israelites when God appears to them on the mountain in the wilderness. They're quaking with fear, Exodus 19. Even Moses, who had been hanging out in God's presence for 40 days at a time, says, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling, quoted in Hebrews 12. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter speaks about building tabernacles for Jesus, Moses, and Elijah because it says, he did not know what to say for they were greatly afraid. We see it with John on Patmos in the book of Revelation. You find the fear reaction in many places in scripture, sometimes even with the appearance of angels, not even in God's presence. The revealed presence of the Holy God makes me aware Of my own unholiness. Men recognize their own sinfulness in an undeniable way when in God's presence. There's fear in the presence of the holiness of God. His holiness is revealed by his power, by his authority. He's more frightening than demons. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a holy God, we're told in Hebrews 10.31. That is, as long as you're alienated from him. But he invites you to be reconciled to him and there is no further need for fearfulness. There's, you know, fear seems to be the topic of the last couple of weeks or something, or at least part of the topic. Uh, there's that good fear, reverence of God and the, and the bad fear, fearing judgment and condemnation. And that has, there's no fear of that for the believer in Jesus. You recall that when Jesus had the disciples put out in the sea for a catch of fish after they had toiled all night and caught nothing, and the nets were filled to the point of breaking, that is, the catch was nearly unsustainable, Peter fell down at Jesus' knees and said, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which which they had taken that counts in Luke 5. When it says they were astonished, that means they were stupefied. They were rendered immovable. It's a very strong expression. Somewhat akin to fear. When we're face to face with the revealed presence of God, unless we have taken that final step of salvation, glorification, in resurrected bodies, when we're... Face to face with that revealed presence, we will first of all be flat on our faces in great fear until he says to us, fear not. That is the natural and involuntary reaction, even for someone who's been redeemed. Well, the people of the Gadarenes are so fearful that they want Jesus to get out of their country. Even if he did have a good effect upon this demonized man, he also wrecked the economy. What other acts of destruction is he going to carry out? Better that he go away. Now, they don't order him to go. They plead with him to go. You don't want to antagonize this guy, apparently. They do not realize that he has not come to condemn nor to destroy, but to bring life. When people are more afraid of what Jesus will do in their lives than what Satan does in the moment, they they often push Jesus away. These people plead for Jesus to leave the area. Radical goodness is not welcome in a region of darkness. Was there something about this community that contributed to this man's possession? We don't know what went on here. This is a Greco-Roman community. It's not necessarily a Jewish community. You know, the Gadarenes, that's from the tribe of Gad. They settled east of the Jordan. But but this Decapolis region that he talks about, that was Greco-Roman dominated. And there were all sorts of... I'm sure there was idolatry and all sorts of other practices. So uh, this community may have had, you know, they couldn't make the guy be demon possessed, but just the atmosphere, the the, uh, area, the way they practice things. Interestingly, Jesus listens to them and he does go. He does not stay where he's not wanted. But he also prepares the area for the future when the people's hearts are going to be more open. So he's, he won't stay where he's not wanted. There's a story told of a, a man who came to a church one Sunday, and he was, he was obviously poor, and he was dressed in rags. And so he went in and service took place, you know, and after the service, one of the elders or somebody came to him and said, uh, you know, before you come to church again, you ought to pray and ask God what you should wear. What kind of clothes you should wear, and so the guy left, you know. And then the next week he's back, you know, and he's dressed the same way. And the guy comes to him and says, "Well, did you, didn't you pray and ask God how you should be dressed, you know?" And he said, "Yeah, I did." And and he told me he had no idea how I should dress to come here because he's never been here before. <laughs> So Jesus came to this side specifically to deliver this man. He has accomplished his mission and he's free to depart back to the other side. You know that story you hear about if you were the only one, Jesus would have died for you. That's proven in this instance. This, This is the only guy he came there to deliver. He did die and he was raised from the dead. So, if you were the only one, it's proven. He wants to reach the others, but for now, he's rejected. He comes here for the one. This previously demon-possessed man wants to go with Jesus, and who wouldn't? Uh, Somebody said this man didn't want only what Jesus could do for him. The true change in his heart was shown by his desire to be with Jesus. He begs Jesus to let him come with him. This word beg is parakaleo, which is related to parakletos, you know, that word. So he's saying, I want to be with you. He's begging him, pleading with him. And Jesus normally encourages men to come and follow him physically as well as spiritually. But not this time. Instead, Jesus tells the man, go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. Psalm sixty-six, sixteen says, Come in here, all you who fear God, and I will declare what he has done for my soul. Jesus immediately commissions the man as a missionary. Wait, Lord, don't you know he needs years of training? Shouldn't he go to a Bible college? I'm not against Bible college, as long as it's the right Bible college. And it's the Lord's will. I mean, wouldn't the best training be to be with the other 12 you've chosen, Jesus? But you tell him to go. But Jesus has a unique plan for this man apart from anyone else, just as he has a unique plan for you and for me. He came to this man to deliver him for a specific purpose. His coming was no accident, and the purpose he has for the man is one that he can pursue apart from physically following Jesus. None of us can follow Jesus physically now. He's no longer present in the flesh in this world. But we all have a commission to take his gospel to the world. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. You may have a more specific commission, like this man does. But if, not, if you do not, you still have the commission he gives all his followers. Take the good news of salvation to your world. Someone said, this is a standing order for all who have experienced the saving grace of God. Go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. If you know nothing else, you know this. And to this man's credit, he does not argue and he does not complain. We're told that he departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him. And all marveled. He's delivered and he recognizes that Jesus is Lord. You know, Jesus told him, go tell everybody what the Lord has done for you. He goes everywhere and tells people what Jesus has done for him. He understands Jesus is Lord. He tells the people in Decapolis about Jesus. He plants seeds and lays groundwork for the future proclamation of the gospel in the region of the ten cities, which is what Decapolis means. The Decapolis region originated in the time of Alexander the Great after his death in 323 BC when his kingdom was divided among his four generals. The Seleucid kingdom shared a northern and eastern border with Syria, or with Israel. It was the area of Syria and Persia. It was a Gentile region, Greco-Roman in culture. There were often conflicts and wars with the Jews uh, before Jesus and after. They clashed with a Hebrew populace whom they considered beneath their civilized society. Circumcision was considered barbaric and monotheism absurd. The Jews were equally repulsed by their pagan worship and unbiblical sexual practices and resisted their cultural intrusion into Israel. Antiochus Epiphanes ruled this kingdom in 167 B.C., the areas of the Decapolis and beyond, when he invaded Israel and sacrificed a pig upon an altar to Zeus in the Jewish temple, which is a foreshadowing of the yet-to-come Antichrist. This act set off the powder keg that became the Maccabean Revolt, and this Jewish victory is still celebrated today with Hanukkah. Well, only one of these ten cities was on the western side of the Jordan River, and that was beth Shan, where King Saul's headless body was strung up on the city gate by the Philistines in 1 Samuel 31. The Greeks renamed it Scythopolis, And it may be this distant country that Jesus referenced in his prodigal son parable when the son fed the swine. The Greeks, of course, ate pork and used pigs in sacrifices. Uh, riotous living was also commonplace in Sathopolis. It's Luke 15. We don't really know that that was the location Jesus was speaking of. Hippos is the only other Decapolis city in modern Israel today. The rest were too far east. Uh, they're now in Jordan, the cities of Pella, Gadara, Dion, Gerasa, Kanatha, and Rafana. And then two of the cities are now in Syria, Damascus and Philadelphia. So this previously demonized man is faithful in taking the good news about Jesus to this ten-city region dominated by Greek and Roman culture and philosophy. He tells everyone the great things that the Lord Jesus has done for him. And we do not know his name other than his possessed name of Legion. Someday those who have believed will know who he is. Oh, you that guy that was formerly demon possessed. <laughs> Meanwhile, Jesus is the Deliverer. He has come to set men free. He delivers men from whatever they are in bondage to. For many of these gospel accounts, one overarching lesson is the power and authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has all power over all creation. He has come to set men free, and he's able to set men free from anything by which they have been overcome. He sets men free from sin, the penalty of sin. Romans 3:23 and 24 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. He sets men free from the judgment of sin. He sets men free from the power of sin, Romans 6:12 through 14. He says, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. Do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. He sets men free from demonic powers. We're told in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 through 22. uh, This is a prayer again. He says, It says, what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that's named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet. And gave him to be head over all things to the church. He can deliver from the evil age. Galatians 1.4 Gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. We don't have to be in bondage to the evil age in which we live. And he knows how to deliver from temptation. 2 Peter 2.9 The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations. And to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. And he delivers from every evil work. 2 Timothy 4, 17 and 18, last part of 17. Paul writes and says, I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. And the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. There. Other things that could be spoken of. Jesus comes for deliverance. He comes to set men free. Demons, the power of darkness, sin, the flesh, delusion, confusion, even disease and death. He comes to deliver men. He delivers from the the condemnation of the law. If there be any other thing, he is the one who can deliver and who will deliver those who trust in him. The Father delivers those who believe into the kingdom of His own dearly beloved Son forever and ever. Amen.